0: Empire. Mm -hmm. Collecting is becoming democratized.
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of people now are using cryptocurrencies as a substitute for fiat payments. So I think I think as many ways um, as you can enable people to purchase these collectible items, whether physical or digital, the better.
0: That's Ezra Levine, CEO of Collectible, where IPOs have a whole new meaning. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. I've come a long way since my childhood days of going to baseball card shows looking for undervalued gems. In 2021, collecting, of course, is digitized. And maybe the biggest change is the vast array of valuables with trends coming at light speed. Go look up an 86 Fleer Michael Jordan card though, and it will surprise you what some of the oldies but goodies are getting. So for Ezra Levine, the marketplace grew to such massive proportions. It was time to go head first into that lane to find a way to help everyone who's interested get a piece. Our guest this week is the CEO of Collectible, Ezra Levine. It's a platform where you can purchase fractional ownership of sports collectibles old and new. And you'd be shocked at what is happening in the marketplace these days. Hey, Ezra, how are you? Hey, Bram. What's going on, buddy? So take me through the ideation of wanting to do a platform that involves fractional ownership of sports collectibles, whether it's a Babe Ruth card or an NFT
1: got it. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we love this market, right? We love what we're seeing in this market. Uh, you know, high value sports collectibles has been a time-honored tradition. It's a marketplace that has existed for well over a hundred years um, and, you know, really lives at the intersection of what we like to call as passion and profits, right? People are very passionate about sports. They're particularly passionate as collectors of sports memorabilia. And historically speaking, there's been a lot of money being made at the upper end of the industry. The problem and the opportunity that we witnessed was that the upper end of the industry, uh, you know, was just pricing out the majority of sports fans who wanted to participate in it, right? So we thought, how can we create a platform where anyone, right, regardless of income levels or net worth could participate? If you're a sports fan, you know, you should be entitled to the same opportunities to uh, invest in and be the proud owners of high value sports collectibles. So really what collectible does through fractional ownership, is it allows sports fans, again, all income brackets, all across the country, soon to be all across the world, to own and invest high quality, high value blue chip sports collectibles.
0: So, were you a collector? Is this how this started for you?
1: I, yeah, you know, like like almost you know probably every boy in America, I've collected uh, you know, trading cards, basketball and baseball cards. Growing up, my dad uh, has been heavy in this markets ever since I can remember. Right, so it's something that I knew a lot about. And I, you know, I definitely did as a kid, like a lot of kids, um, you know, in the nineties, you sort of lost track of the market, uh, you know, in the quote unquote junk wax era. Yeah. Obviously we, we, we've all returned to it because, you know, there's some really exciting things happening and we we can talk a lot about that, but yeah, it's, it's been in my blood both, you know, personally, since I was a kid and through my dad, who's been in this market as long as I can remember.
0: Uh, And what were you doing before collectible? What industry were you in?
1: I worked in, so I was at the intersection really of finance and sports entrepreneurship, right? So I know you're, you're a big football guy, obviously, as the voice of the, of the, of the, of the Washington football team. I actually co-founded uh, a minor league football league called the Spring League, which is currently playing on uh, FS1, right? So I, I co-founded that. In addition to that, uh, I was on Wall Street for about 10 years where I uh, was effectively analyzing public companies and investing in public companies. Um, in retail, sports, consumer, uh, and media industry. So I spent about a decade on Wall Street as well.
0: So then what brought you back to this? What was it about it? Is it a passion thing for you, or did you just see the opportunity in the marketplace?
1: A little bit of both, right? So, you know, it, it was definitely a passion, but, you know, I saw a real opportunity where we get, or I you know, I and my and our amazing team could really, you know, sort of steal some of the concepts that have worked in the public markets and apply them, uh, to the sports collectibles industry, right? You know, really what we saw was, uh, you know, an under-the-surface booming industry that just had so many friction points for people to participate in it, right? Um, and I could talk a lot about those friction points, but primarily really what we saw was that it priced out, you know, almost everyone who wants to participate. It was just the wealthy transacting with the wealthy, uh, and what we really saw was an opportunity to democratize this industry, to break down barriers to it, Make it more liquid, to make it more flexible, to increase awareness, to bring more education, more transparency to it, more regulation to it, to change its reputation from one that was sort of riddled in mistrust to one that you know what was filled with good actors and real regulation behind it. So you know, we just saw just a litany of opportunities, and we, we believe that you know fractional ownership was uh, the the most elegant of all those issues, and to bring this industry into its next uh, chapter of growth.
0: So I'm a collector. I think you know that I'm a collector. And I like you, when I was a kid, I collected mainly baseball cards because that was the popular thing to collect at the time. I am very happy that I collected some basketball cards because we can talk about what the marketplace has done here um, in the last couple of years. But what used to happen was I would go to card shows, which I think do still exist, maybe not in a pandemic, but they do. I would go with my guide. It would tell me what the prices would be. I would go look for diamonds in a rough or something that was undervalued to add to my collection. But to your point, even then, um, I'm not getting the Ty Cobb cigarette card from 1932, you know, it's because who knows what the number is going to be. It became like a piece of art. So I, I understand where you're coming from that, this even then in the nascent boom of all of this never was really accessible to average people.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, you know, again, yeah, you know, the 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 prices at the upper end of the industry have always been high, right? But you know, obviously, the last couple of years they've just absolutely skyrocketed. I think our view and the industry's view was that this was a marketplace that for a long time was underappreciated, and I think it was underappreciated because. Again, there were just so many friction points to get access to it, and only a very few, um, select group of people could afford to participate in it. You know, we thought, how cool would it be, and, and what would this industry look like if instead of just you know being available to a select few, anyone could participate in it, or right? Anyone could experience that pride of ownership. Again, sports, in our view, is one of the most democratic things probably in the world, right? I mean, you know, you, you you look at the percentage of the population who loves sports, who watches sports, and Again, it's probably one of the least controversial things out there, right? So we thought, again, here's this amazing industry that lives uh, at this intersection of just a really fun consumer experience where people just love to collect it, uh, and a real financial asset class where people are looking to invest in alternatives. And we thought, you know, again, uh, this that this marketplace could, with the advent of new technology and new regulations and different ways uh, of transacting, could you know, could have a, 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 a meaningful growth. Uh, prospects in, in the
0: future. The one part of it, though, that I'd love to hear your, your opinion on is when I did go to those card shows or I do get a jersey or a pennant or whatever it is, it's mine. When I do acquire it, it is in my possession um, it, it, under this model. Um, I'm not going to literally hold it. It's not going to be hanging on my wall. It's not in my binder, whatever, wherever I would keep something like this. So how do you how did you kind of think through the collection aspect of not tangibly holding the product that you are part owner of?
1: it's a great question yeah i mean this this was one of the major uh, critiques which we got in our business right i you know it is such a tangible or has been historically a really tangible industry where people love to touch and see and feel their their collections this is obviously an intangible way to invest and own intangible items it's funny i think you know that perception really changed over the last couple months with you know the real sort of proliferation and popularity of nfts of these digital collectibles right now people are pretty comfortable in general with owning things that they may never actually feel physically, right? But that still has real tangible value, right? It's got tangible uh, economic value, it's got tangible financial value, uh, and still has tangible emotional value. You may not own the card uh, physically, right? But but you own it in every other way that's meaningful to you. And, you know, I think the, the dirty little secret at the upper end of the industry, right. You know, where price points are, where collectibles are really playing is people by and large don't keep these things in their home. Right. I mean, they're, they're all stored in, in, you know, in, in really safe uh, places like vaults, right. Because again, you know, the, you're talking sometimes these are six to seven figure right. assets and people just, yeah. You know, so everyone wants to make sure that they're fully insured and fully protected and temperature controlled and fireproof and all that stuff. Right. So, you know, the, w- where we're playing, it's not, it's not as if people are, you know, it's not the alternative of I can see it every day, touch it every day, or I don't see it at all. By and large, these are kept in vaults anyway. So this is just, you know, a, a way for people to, you know, to sort of make it more digital and diversified and liquid. Um, and so that, that's, you know, that's sort of what, what, what we're seeing so far there.
0: Let's talk about some of the broad things. You mentioned NFTs. Um, I would assume because you're in this, you're not surprised by what's happening, but I think on some level, everybody is surprised at the explosion of it with Top Shot and now all of the other, the Gronk drop, uh, you know, a couple months back with the amount of money that he was able to garner off of the designs there in a limited short run period of time. Um, What is just your overall sense of that marketplace and, and is it a bubble in your mind?
1: Well, you know, I, look, I think I think digital collectibles in the forms of NFTs have been an absolute godsend, again, for the sports industry, right? Uh, you know, if, if you take a step back, you know, just our industry, collectibles, really was for a long time had this reputation of being a sleepy, fragmented, lacking innovation, lacking... Know, real progress for decades decades right again you know as recently as you know a year ago when, when we when we got into this that that was this industry's perception I think what people have seen over the last year both you know in terms of fractional ownership right of making these you know tangible items you know a security right and now these digital uh, collectibles right I, our industry has just been a it's been it's become mainstream it's become popular it's become part of pop culture uh, there's been a ton of innovation and I think people are just are excited about you know about what you know both fractionalization and digital collectibles can do for the collectible category I think now you're really seeing this as sort of a, a third-headed monster to fantasy sports and sports gambling Right? So you know, I think I, I I I love what the NFTs have done for the collectible category from a pure marketing perspective. You know, I think I think there's going to be you know winners and losers across NFTs like there isn't anything else. Right? There's going to be really thoughtful, uh, well-intended projects that succeed that have great utility to them, and uh, and, there, and there's and there's going to be other projects that are not good opportunities and not good investments uh, because they they're just not unique in any way. Right? I think I think the the, the same concepts that have applied in the physical world will probably apply in the digital world, right? It's all about scarcity and it's all about historical and cultural relevance and, um, you know, sort of how many of these are being produced and and all that stuff, right? So I think it's so early to really, you know, sort of give a firm opinion on these NFTs. But what I will say is that, you know, from just an industry perspective, I think it's a tremendous amount of innovation uh, in a short period of time. And I think it's fundamentally altered the perception of collectibles um, and you know, it is need collectibles really mainstream and that third headed monster to fantasy sports and sports gambling in a way that I don't think a lot of people saw coming as recently as six months ago.
0: All right, let me, this may be too in the weeds, but I'm, I'm curious your, your answer to this, because a lot of this stuff on your platform is the traditional things that we can get into some of those IPO type. Um, material cards that you've done and sold that have, have made a lot of news lately but in top shot if you want to purchase a pack you have to use blockchain technology you have to use ethereum um there's a new platform in horse racing that i'm a big fan of called zed run same thing you've got to buy um you've got to buy essentially a cryptocurrency to acquire it how do you kind of view the future of transactions in this space
1: uh, you know, I think I think our, our our view is that, you know, as many ways as you can allow people to participate, the better, right? I mean, our, our mission at Collectible is to democratize the industry, to open up, you know, to knock down barriers to, to entry. And I think, you know, again, you know, I, I think a lot of people now are using cryptocurrencies as a substitute for fiat payments, right? So I think, I think as many ways um, as you can enable people to purchase these collectible items, whether physical or digital, the better. I mean, you know, I think obviously... You know, there, there has to be some degree of standards set, right? Because if you're a company who's accepting uh, cryptocurrencies, then you just want to make sure that it has a reasonable store value and a reasonable, um, you know, it's a reasonably um, you know, sort of solid form of payment, right? But again, you know, our, our view really is just that as many ways as people can pay for this and get involved better.
0: Okay, let's talk about some of the traditional stuff. And recently, I've seen this through your platform where you have found some very valuable older traditional cards, Babe Ruth, namely recently, where it went up for an IPO and then turned around, it sold at a much higher percentage quickly. Um, Can you kind of just take me through the process of where you're procuring these, these cards, and then how a user would go about being part of getting in on it?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, our our procurement really is, you know, we have a lot of industry-leading reputation um, and a lot of industry-leading connections, right? And, you know, our connections run the gamut from dealers and auctioneers to private collectors and collections uh, and museums, right? So we're, we're, we're very well connected in this category, um, and we've really prioritized relationships just both, you know, on, on the supply level and also – you know, in our, in how we sort of built the investor base and the cap table of our business, right? So, you know, on the supply side, we've got just an incredible quality of supply and just an incredible quantity of supply. Um, Yeah, you've seen some, you've seen some, you know, as we call them a collectible, some buyouts uh, of items on the platform recently. You know, it's been, I don't think it's any secret that it's been a fast moving marketplace. um, And there's been real opportunities for people to, to make a quick buck, right? You know, it's not something that we market or advertise overly aggressively. We're in this for the long haul. We think this is something that if you look at historical data, the high end sports collectibles industry for long periods of time have been, you know, a really attractive place to invest over long periods of time, right? But you know, we are in this market cycle now where things are moving quickly and prices are fluctuating really quickly. And so we have a lot of uh, a lot of people, big collectors, dealers, auction houses, what have you, we look at our platform on a daily basis uh, and know exactly what's out there and how much it's sold for and how many owners there are and how many shareholders there are, and so people tried to be opportunistic in in acquiring some of our best-in-class supply. And right? so, you know, our job really is you know, we take these high-value items and we sell shares of them to the public. The net result of that is that you know shareholders are the owners of these assets, not so much collectible anymore. Although collectible, the company does have equity and everything we put on. But by and large, it's shareholder assets. right? So when these offers are received, we're fully transparent. It's our fiduciary responsibility to the owners of these assets to present opportunities for them to hopefully make you know, a, some, some money. Right? So we, we present uh, these to uh, the shareholders and the assets. We take a survey, a pro rata survey. And if the majority of people want to sell it, it by and large gets sold.
0: All right. So let me ask them the big question, which is why now um, there has just been an explosion in pricing, interest, the market itself. As you pointed out, there was a period of time where this was not happening. Um, when I was a kid, it was a very popular thing into the 90s and maybe early 2000s. It suddenly was not um, what has happened here over the last whatever it is, five years, whatever it is in your mind, that you believe has not only rejuvenated this, but made this market explode?
1: A lot, right? So, you know, I, I would point to probably, you know, at its core, right, so if we go back a couple of years, I would say, you know, it was sort of the the uh, the reprioritization of scarcity and rarity in the hobby, right? I think, uh, you know, really what we saw, if you go even further back, you know, back in, you know, back, you know, if you go back decades, right, there used to be only one set or one key rookie card for all these players, right, and they and they produced a really finite amount of them, right, and, and so that that created scarcity and scarcity and rarity uh, in collecting is really what drives a lot of the value, right, and then you know as we traveled forward and this became a real booming industry, right, a multi-billion-dollar industry, you know, a lot of the manufacturers got you know a little capitalistic and a little greedy, and they started overproducing. Uh, and there was a lot of competition, which came into this category, right? And so that additional supply uh, just sort of had a downward pressure uh, on prices. Cut two, you know, uh, after you know after a few uh, years of you know of, of a not so fun run for this industry, you know, a, a lot of the production got right sized, and you know a lot of the manufacturers entered into exclusive agreements with with leagues, right? And so that again that limited you know, how many of these cards. Uh, were produced, right? So we we brought back that scarcity factor, that rarity factor, uh, and and then you know had a lot of creativity in terms of these cards, right? On the modern cards, you know, they started inputting uh, and inserting you know patches of jerseys and signatures, right? So the, the innovation with the cards themselves got much better, and couple that with the scarcity and the rarity, that that sort of started to draw, you know, to to, to move prices up again. And then I think what happens is when, when prices continue to go up and up and up, it draws attention, right? And it draws, uh, you know, attention from really, you know, big media players and that increases awareness. So you know, really what now you're seeing is a ton of demand coming to this category uh, in limited or fixed supply, right? So when you have a ton of demand and not that much product, people want to pay more and more and more for, for those same items. Then what happens is, you know, you start to see these returns, these financial returns, And so it's now become an attractive alternative asset class for people, you know, for real financial types and, you know, individual investors, institutional investors, um, hedge funds, private equity firms are all looking for these uh, alternative assets to diversify their portfolios. When you look historically, again, this has been an industry that has generated, you know, just really outsized returns compared to more traditional investments. And, you know, in the finance world, we call this, you know, uncorrelated returns by and large, it's not, yeah, it's somewhat correlated to how the economy is doing and how the stock market is doing, but it's, it, you know, it's really its own animal. And there is this emotional attachment to sports and sports collectibles, which gives this, you know, sort of uh, more defensibility of, of pricing and valuations when times get a little tough, right? So I think it's, it's this combination of, um, you know, sort of uh, more rarity and scarcity, more innovation, uh, far better grading standards where things are just standardized more, Uh, A lot of new players and new demand coming into it, athletes, entertainers, celebrities are coming into it. And then you also have this sort of financialization of this where institutional money is coming in. And so again, just tons of demand uh, hitting a supply constrained marketplace all at once, which is really driving further interest and further record prices.
0: Okay, so let's kind of tie this together and think ahead a little bit. So this was all standard and controlled rights and image and likeness was all controlled by companies that had uh, partnerships with leagues and were able to then produce these collectibles. Um, We're in a new space now, and you know that. Like the NFTs, the Gronk thing, there's a lot happening with players and potentially entertainers doing their own collectibles outside of a league. And then in the collegiate world, name, image, and likeness seems to be able to open up the door for a lot of younger athletes to decide how they want to try to brand and sell their name, image, and likeness. As you think into the future, what does the collectible market really look like and, and who's in control of it?
1: It's a it's a great, great question. Look, I mean, I, I, I could not be more bullish on the collectibles industry at large. I think, again, just, just the amount of innovation that you've seen in the last year I think it is really just an unbelievable telltale sign of what happens to, again, a historically under, uh, you know, sort of part of the market that lives at this intersection of passion and profits where there's finally, you know, a different, uh, different type of person coming into it. A lot of money's come in, uh, you know, a lot of new technologies come in, a lot of cultural and historical relevance has come in. Right. So yeah, I think, you know, just in the direction of the category, obviously it's no guarantee, but our personal view is that, you know, this this market and this industry is really just getting going after decades of, of sort of fragmentation and sleepiness. You know, I think it's a great question, right? Who who ultimately is in control long term, right? Will it be the IP holders and the leagues themselves? Will it be the manufacturers who have, you know, the, the exclusive licenses? Will the power shift back to, to the players, right? Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a really great question. I think it, it's one that everyone is sort of trying to figure out in every different type of of arena. But yeah, I think, I think there's, you're going to see a tremendous amount of innovation happening. Uh, just a, a lot of new players coming to the space and a lot of money coming to this, you know, into the space. And again, I, I think it's going to be a really exciting next decade for collectibles. All
0: right. Last thing. Uh, what's your Mona Lisa? What is the thing you're looking for that you would like to have either full ownership or part ownership of?
1: Well, so I'll, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to, to kind of just tell you a little bit uh, about what happened on Wednesday night. Cause collectibles should just set, uh, a, a huge record, both for fractional ownership and for the game-worn uh, memorabilia category at large. Right? We, uh, we had a 1959-1960 Wilt Chamberlain uh, full home rookie uniform. So he wore this uh, in pretty much all of his home games in his historic rookie season. I'm still flabbergasted when I look at his stats from his rookie season. You know, he, he averaged 37 points. 27 rebounds. He broke eight NBA (laughs) records. He was the NBA MVP. He was the MVP as a rookie, right? So just an incredible, incredible jersey, or I should say full uniform because it was the top and the shorts. We sold this to 1,040 unique collectors and investors for $1.275 million. Uh, It sold out in one hour flat on our platform on Wednesday night. Uh, It broke, it shattered, I should say, shattered the all time fractional memorabilia record. Uh, we still, you know, we as a company still hold the all time sports uh, IPO record, uh, but it, you know, it, it shattered the memorabilia record and it also broke the, the, uh, the record for the single highest price uh, paid for a full NBA basketball jersey as well. So, uh, you know, just uh, that, that I think was the, the perfect microcosm of Collectibles' ability to bring just incredible uh, jaw dropping supply to as many people who want to participate as possible.
0: Ezra Levine is the CEO of Collectible. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Bram. That will do it for this episode. As always, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein.